and everyone was like, this is never going to happen in Australia. Never, ever, ever. If I had one penny for every person who told me that, I would be so rich. Uh, I would live on a boat on a yacht in front of the sea. That's Flavia Tardanadini, and this is Wild Hearts. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. We're here to uncover the lessons from the founders looking to change the world and the investors who back them. This podcast is brought to you by the team of Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. Blackbird is based across ANZ. We invest in startups from pre-seed to pre-IPO, from space to software. And Blackbird was founded in 2012 with a single mission, to supercharge the most ambitious founders. Welcome to episode two of Wild Hearts. Flavia Tardanadini is a wildly inspirational rocket scientist, co-founder, CEO, mother of two, who was pioneering the space industry from Adelaide, South Australia with her venture-backed startup Fleet. Fleet's mission is to connect everything. That's right. The team is hard at work in the lab designing, building, launching toaster-sized satellites that will become the digital nervous system for our planet drive a connected world and unlock the next industrial revolution. Here's Flavia describing the essence of fleet solution. To you know, solve big, big problems, you need to see them from the top. So we now we are creating a constellation in low Earth orbit that is a orbit very close to Earth to give the ability of, of customers and, and, and everyone, not just clients in the big oil and gas companies, like forget about those for a second, even environmental everything to actually have a way of connecting and receiving data from, from the assets, where they are, from where they, they are distributed. It's, it's mental. This industry has got 90% of unawareness of everything they've deployed there. They just make decisions in a way that is not right. So we want to change this. We want to give them fully visibility. Blackbird's first investment in fleet was the first in a space company in Australia. In Fleet's initial investment memo, Blackbird general partner and co-founder Nikki Shivak wrote, A decade ago, the notion of building a global data network with universal coverage of the Earth's surface would have required billions of dollars from the world's largest telecommunication companies. Today, it's conceivable that a global network can be started and proven by a startup with the use of a few million dollars and rolled out for tens of millions of dollars. Fleet is making that possible. Nikki goes on to say, the company then plans to launch two CubeSats, which are satellites, in a reduction in approximately two years. They've done that, but it hasn't been easy as Flavia will tell you later in the episode. It's time to jump in with Nicky as he tells us that those who dare win, those who try to be right all the time will never go anywhere, and those who expose themselves to luck are the ones who make it. What inspired you about Fleet and, and uh, why did you decide to invest? What was it interesting about uh, Fleet when we first met them was the idea that you could build a global network in space for a very, very small fraction of the cost of building a telecommunications network on the ground. So instead of having to dig up dirt and um, put down towers, you could instead send these sort of loaf of bread sized satellites up into space and you could get coverage all around the world for, you know, single digit millions rather than, you know, double digit billions, which wireless and and other telco networks would spend to even build out a single geography. So as much as it was about space, it was about this opportunity to build a telecommunications network for a, a tiny amount of money. 
And the other analogy is, um, you know, think of it like you're selling a mobile phone plan for 10 bucks a month and you get unlimited data instead of selling a mobile phone plan for 60 bucks a month and you get one gigabyte of data, which is currently, you know, the, the satellite industry as it is versus what Fleet wants to do. So the, the truly sort of um, leap forward moment for Fleet will be when they uh, do have their own satellite network, they're able to offer this huge amount of data for a you know, small, small fraction of the current cost. And that's the disruptive moment to the industry where they're able to offer huge amounts of data for you know, very, very low cost. Until they have their own satellite network, they can't do that without you know, going broke. So they have pioneered um, uh, the existing customers. They have um, sold a you know, deeply inferior product to what they want to launch. But you know, what they want to launch uh, requires their own satellite backhaul. It was one of the first space investments in Australia at the time, can you describe some of the challenges with making that investment given how early it was? I think for today's space companies, it's never been more exciting. So if you think back to the 1960s, you needed to be the US government or the Russian government, you needed to have the presidential kind of blessing, you needed tens of billions of dollars, you needed the nation to get behind the idea of, of doing something in space. And that has rapidly changed. You do not need that much money at all. You can build a satellite, for a few hundred thousand dollars, um, you can book a rocket and get that satellite into space for a few hundred thousand dollars more. And so the accessibility of uh, space and the opportunity for founders to build startups in space has, has, has come about. So that, that is all night and day different to the, to the 1960s. However, when you compare space startups to software startups, the disadvantages really are around the sort of feedback cycles or iteration loops. Uh, it still does uh, uh, sort of take up to a year to develop a payload and to develop a, a satellite. It still is a undesirable industry to try and get that satellite up quickly into space. You have to either play second fiddle uh, to a to a bigger satellite. You have to you know endure all the delays of the rockets uh, either through the uh, the fault of the rocket company or through the fault of the sort of main customer on on the rocket. So getting satellite ready and then getting that satellite into space um, is still a long period of time relative to a software company. It's still in the order of one or two years, but it's um, uh, not in the order of one or two months, which sort of software startups can operate towards. The second thing is um, it's this real sort of um, <clears throat> lottery um, in that if you don't get it all perfectly right, you have you know, a very expensive piece of electronics in space doing nothing. And so the sort of supply chain, so people are very conservative in sort of pushing the boundary for any of the hardware components. So where people are happy to use all the latest electronics in a consumer electronic setting or all the latest electronics in some sort of industrial sensor, you can just swap it out if it doesn't work. In space, you need to be incredibly conservative in either using parts that have been used before but that you know, naturally means they're out of date or getting comfort in each of those components if you are pushing the boundary that they will actually work when they're in space. So it's almost like the wedding cake problem where if you just bought a cake, it would be $20, but if you buy a wedding cake, it's $200. And so you have a similar sort of problem in the space industry where components that are super cheap on the ground in sort of a traditional setting, perhaps are you know, super expensive because um, they're being tested or have heritage in, in a space setting. Especially on the first point with feedback loops being longer than what you typically see with software companies, how did you gain comfort with Fleet Story and what were they doing differently to what you might expect a normal hardware company might do? 
I think uh, Fleet is is not a space company, but it's a an IoT or a, a sort of unlocks this new area of industry to use computers and to use data much in the same ways that you know most of the software world and most of the technology world makes decisions with data. You know, there are all these industries like agriculture and oil and gas and other sort of large remote outdoor industries that simply do not use technology to its um, fullest capacity. And Fleet really unlocks that where you have uh, currently a situation where they it's just simply uh, prohibitively expensive to do anything to, to connect all of the devices and, and to run a business in those industries with technology at the heart of it. What was attractive about Fleet and the idea of building a cheap network in space was you could unlock all of these use cases that weren't possible before. And you know this sort of test uh, question that we always ask at Blackbird when making an investment is is something 10x better than the the status quo. Well, you know if you 100x uh, uh, decrease the cost cost of something, if you unlock something that was not possible before, then that sort of question was very easily answered. And so I think the ability to do something that you could not do before to these huge industries and um, to make it you know, 100x cheaper than any sort of comparative solution was an incredibly exciting mission to sign up for. 2016, you wrote a blog post and it describes a, a theme that I know that you like to talk about a lot, which is units of progress. I wanted to pick your brain on what that means to you. Yeah, so the venture capital industry operates under sort of these uh, set of constraints or you have these building blocks that the industry fits into. And um, in the venture capital industry, it's seed rounds and series A rounds. And what that means is that you get a set amount of money. You get a couple of million dollars in a seed round. You know, you get five to $10 million in a series A round. And, you know, in both you get sort of 12 to 24 months to prove something. So to make some definable unit of progress. In the space industry in the 1960s, you, you know, it didn't make sense to raise a seed round because you couldn't do anything with that amount of money and you couldn't do anything with that amount of time. In 2016, it became possible to do something with a few million dollars and with 12 to 24 months. Primarily, that is around um, can you build a satellite? Uh, again, you had this uh, supply chain of satellite providers that had created CubeSats that were suited for commercial use. You had, again, in, a, in an undesirable way, but in a, uh, an available way, the ability to get that small satellite up into space. Uh, and then also the, the sort of ability, again, opening up lower Earth orbit. So traditionally, the space industry has been built around a geosynchronous orbit, which is um, very far up. LEO is um, just out of the atmosphere. It's sort of 100, 200, 300 kilometers up. And um, the ability to deliver really small satellites. So these are the, I think, loaf of bread or a small box of fruit size satellites. Um, you could hitch a ride with these other bigger customers. You could get dropped off in in Leo um, and you could sort of get started again for that small amount of money and small amount of time and, and, and make a bunch of progress. Fleet's ambition has always been huge from the beginning to connect everything. How have you seen Flavia and the early founding team start with that and, and how have you seen their ambition grow over time? I think the magic of Flavia and the team at, at Fleet is as much creating a mission that attracts people, wrangling different parties uh, to achieve something, um, whether it is, uh, again, scrambling to negotiate how to hop on the back of a, uh, another rocket, how to get people to do things on the hardware side for you when you don't have any money. And in particular, um, the big element for space and any kind of telecommunications company is frequency. And I think 
in the beginning how uh, Flavia in particular has wrangled multiple people around the world from the telecommunications uh, union in the Solomon Islands to people in Russia and Monaco agreeing on different frequency bands, different companies agreeing to share and um, make way for Fleet to lock in different frequency allocations. I think really bringing along all of the stakeholders, whether you're hiring a great team, whether you're attracting investors, whether you're partnering with a, a satellite hardware company, buying space on a rocket or locking in frequency. I think this is incredible coordination or project management to get things to happen um, you know, with not a lot of money and, and certainly not a lot of structure. What do you think other founders can learn from Flavio? I think you just have to dare to do it. And, you know, again, not talking about doing things, not complaining that the government doesn't do enough, um, not complaining that you're not in Silicon Valley, not complaining that you haven't raised $100 million, just going and doing it. Flavia lives in Adelaide. She has built the company and attracted uh, the team from all around the world to come and move their lives and families um, to Adelaide to work for the company. She, even before we invested at Blackbird, had uh, sort of bootstrapped an education business that allowed them to, um, in return, get some space on a CubeSat that was part of a university project and was never inhibited by uh, limited money or limited structure. And I think you, there's always reasons why it's not perfect. There's always reasons why things aren't quite right. And um, there's just a subset of people that go and do things rather than go and talk about things. Do you think that the nature of moving through walls in the way that you're describing, just daring to do it, has its shortcomings in execution, especially when you're starting a, a, a space or, as you put it, an IoT company? I think shortcomings in terms of, you know, does it have a high chance of failure? Um, sure, but, you know, it doesn't mean it wasn't the right thing to do. I think you have to divorce the outcome of something from the weighted probability of, of, of doing it. And so, yes, like all startups and like all businesses, um, most will fail and most won't succeed. However, when they do succeed, they succeed in this you know, very profound way. And so again, you know, the, the daring to do, the, the spoils go to the victor and the victor uh, is the person that um, you know, dares, dares to do it. Why does it make sense to divorce the outcome with the weighted probability that you can get that outcome? I think otherwise the world doesn't achieve anything. You, know, you can try to be right all the time but you'll end up with nowhere. Uh, you, you'll end up not achieving anything in the world. And that's a very unsatisfying thing. It's sort of, you know, you can be right every time and, you know, there's nothing at the end of that rainbow. Uh, or you can do things, um, you can fail. Doesn't mean you have to get wiped out and can't do anything again. You get back up, you try again, um, you take the lessons of what didn't work the first time around and adjust it to the second time around uh, and you keep shooting. You know, Michael Jordan missed more shots than he took but, you know, just because he missed uh, 10 shots in a row doesn't mean he's not going to take the 11th shot. And so I think you need to keep shooting. You know, luck is a process. Luck, you have to expose yourself to luck to be lucky. And, you know, the, the sort of fallacy of um, the unlucky people that uh, sort of cry in their uh, spilt milk is, um, uh, you know, why does that person get lucky? Well, that person got lucky because they exposed themselves to luck and, you know, they took the shot. Now it's time to listen to the co-founder of Fleet, Flavia. When did you start getting serious about space? For many, many years, I wanted to, I was convinced the alien was on Earth, so I needed to build this big rocket ship to find them. Okay, that was probably up to 15 years old. 
Then he changed on uh, becoming an astronaut. So I was doing all this research. How can I become? Da, da, da. I don't see him very well. Like I wore glasses. And I was playing professional basketball at that time. So I was pretty healthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 15 up to my 25, really, really high level. So I was doing all these things. I'm like, I can become an astronaut, but I can't really see. So going online, doing all this testing, tests to see like, can I, can I just see? But... Um, I'm, I'm blind. No, I'm not really blind. Then I, when I finished school, uh, I was talking with my brothers and sisters, should I do astronomy or like some weird research? They were all engineers. So I said, just, just do aerospace engineering or space engineering, stuff like that. So I said, okay. So I jumped on that. Really hated it the first two years because it was, I was really good at school. I was, I was not a good student. I was, a, I had, all massive, like all 10, but I was really naughty. So all the, always missing schools, never studying. So I'm that kind of student. But I mean, it came out with maximum grade everywhere. But uh, so I'm like, okay. So I went to uni. I couldn't wake up in the morning. Got really bored about math and things. Couldn't see anything about space. But yeah, then he got me and, you know, came out with best grades and here I am. <laughs> what were some of the lessons that you learned through uni and then have have been some of the, the principles that you still use today at Fleet? Listen, I mean, like, we started very complex things, okay, in university. Do I remember them? No. What I've learned is things about me, that I was very dedicated, the way I work. Um, I have learned... The biggest lesson. So I am. I really work under pressure. You know, you could see me doing nothing for a month and let's mesh it three days before. I have. I've got massive memory. So the thing about me is that if you probably ask me, page four of the shareholders agreement, I remember it. Okay, so I have massive memory. What were some of the insights that led you to start Fleet? Fleet, fleet is complicated because I never in my life ever, ever thought about becoming an entrepreneur. I didn't even know what it was. Like my brothers and sisters all work with corporate. I've got two brothers that one is like the CFO, the other one is a CTO of biggest oil and gas company. So for me, it was like always this thing about being part of a corporate, you know. Mm. Uh, my grandfather had three degrees of engineering, worked at corporate all his life. It was just like this. I didn't know what entrepreneurship was. Then I moved to Australia, wanted to find a normal job. What could we even a PhD? You know, like, and I've got this. Couldn't find any PhD because what I wanted to do, no one had experience in Australia. So all the professor like, oh, we really don't know this topic. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And then uh, we co-founded the company before Fleet. And that was meeting Matt, you know, that he had... Not in a corporate, not even a university all his life. So it's like, wait, do entrepreneurship? And I'm like, wow. So I was stuck in a corner. I wanted to keep doing what I love. I didn't care what was the meaning to do that. I just wanted to launch Cynthia Space as I always done. I wanted to keep doing it. I wanted to do what I was born to do. And it's like, you know, we can actually build something that we want. And I remember vividly that the moment where I thought, oh, this is something. I went to this conference. I think it was in Melbourne. And everyone was talking about IoT. That was like five years ago. It was a big room. 
and everyone will say there's going to be three trillion devices that are going to travel from US, this, that, from Melbourne to Adelaide. We're going to connect it all. And my brain was like, how? Like, how? That 3G and 4G cover like 2% of the world. How are you going to do that? That makes no sense. Like connecting three trillion devices with the technology of today, it will be more than GDP of the entire world 10 times. So I, I remember vividly standing up and there was the seat folks, so all the people that are really popular now in, in the world. I say, I say, how are you going to connect all these things? Like with 3G? Like what are you going to do to connect them all? And there was this 200 people quiet and someone said, we don't know really. There are not communication tools at the moment. Someone will figure it out. And I'm like, wow, I'll figure it out. So I remember stepping out, calling Matt, and I'm like, coming to Sydney. I think I've got an idea. And I went to Sydney. And I remember having breakfast with one amazing man that really helped us. They had an amazing constellation of satellites in Asia um, of Kasifi. And he said, Internet of Things is the future. I'm like, Matt, this is what people want. You know, the industry wants this. That's how it started. And why didn't you uh, join a company that, like the one that you just mentioned, um, versus what gave you the confidence to say, let's start a space company I mean, in Adelaide? If you got in front of you all companies that try to crack this problem and saying that it's too hard to crack. No, I mean, like, this is something new. And I love new stuff. You know, I've got patents in my life. I work in advanced concepts in European space. So I can't work on things that people already done. So even in a corporate, I could not work on things that are already existing because that's way not challenging. So I'm like, I think these things doesn't exist. I think we can tackle global connectivity, low cost from space. Why don't you let listeners know what is fleet and how are you building a solution to solve the problem that you've described? So what's the problem? First of all, I mean, the problem is that it's a, it, it, it is fascinating. So how I describe it, okay? There are two ways of describing it. One that I love and one that is more real and a bit boring, okay? So the, the very real and a bit boring is that the biggest industry in the world, the biggest, like the oil and gas, mining, agriculture, all of them, energy, the biggest I've gone through this enormous third industrial revolution. It's changing the way people work, changing the way, you know, you're in front of your computer and you connect all things. It's been massive change in the past 20 years. And now we are opening up for another change. Like all the assets will be, will come online. So their visibility, so people visibility in this industry on their assets distributed everywhere is zero. It's, in, it's incredible. So, there is an industrial revolution happening in which they want to connect the assets. They want to understand. They want to have data. They want to understand. The impact of this, I love it, because the impact of this industry not working in an efficient way is not just on revenue and efficiency. is is on Earth, right? We don't use energy enough in the right way. We don't use water enough and in the right way. We don't distribute resources enough. We cannot find resources enough in the right way. There is an impact on the world, on this industry, completely destroying the planet because the efficiency is very low and the visibility on the good things and the bad things is very low. So it's an industrial revolution and hopefully it's going to change the world for the better. Like this is what happened with the computers. 
And now this is going to happen with the Internet of Things. So giving the chance for everyone. And space, why space? Space, this is big companies, big assets all over the world. Space, you see, from the top, right? Uh, space, see, it's the world from the top. It's a different view. It's, it's the global view. So to, to you know, solve big, big problems, you need to see them from the top. So we now we are creating a constellation in low Earth orbit that is orbit very close to Earth to give the ability of, of customers and, and, and everyone, not just clients in the big oil and gas companies, like forget about those for a second, even environmental everything, to actually have a way of connecting and receiving data from, from the assets, from where they are, from where they, they are distributed. It's, it's mental. This industry has got 90% of unawareness of everything they've deployed there. They just make decisions in a way that is not right. So we want to change this. We want to give them fully visibility. And uh, the problem has always been that connectivity was not present or super expensive. Like incredible satellites. Not expensive? Super expensive. We are talking about you can connect a, you know, a valve to monitor a, a river for $10,000 a month. Like, why are you going to do that? <laughs> you can't do it. So change the, com the communication and give, you know, those people an end-to-end -end solution to actually get the right data out of the field. And what I love about, about this is that Matt and I, this is a big period. A lot of people talk about big data. Oh, yeah, we're going to get all this big data. We hated the word. Like, this is, this is bullshit. So we call it the small data revolution. Get, just, just get little pieces of data, the smart data. Can you describe a real customer example? I can give you a million of examples. But, you know, this, uh, this year we have uh, done a project in all South Australia that I love that is uh, checking the, the every park and oval of South Australia to check, up, check uh, for urban greening, how much we water. Because the more we water our parks, the better it is for everyone. You can go out, the, the temperature of the city goes down. And, you know, South Australia is huge. I mean, you need satellites. So I've, we've got example all around the world. It's really good stuff. With the example of the energy provider, they would pay fleet um, every month and then they in turn would have visibility on some of the examples that you talked about. Yeah. And that would so we perhaps help them. We, we help them to deploy the, the right sensors. The network gives the ability to bring, uh, they don't really bring data in the cloud usually. Hmm. They use all, in industry, they use all SCADA systems that brings data to a very, very protect network. But now with, with this type of more secure cloud, you can have data in everyone, mobile. You know, so you don't need, you don't, I mean, we are used to the work with software and Atlassian and all this amazing stuff, but this industry still don't have anything in the cloud. So they're working like 50 years ago. So no visibility, nothing in the cloud, um, no data. Uh, for example, now at the moment, so in that case, we help them creating that network in which they can connect all these low-cost sensors, not like three points, but 100,000 of points, okay, in which finally they can make decisions. Okay, that area of, uh, of Melbourne is trading a lot of energy because people have got, uh, you know, a lot of renewables bring it into the grid. We need to switch off this area. We need to choose other. Solar farm is, is it's, uh, you know, bringing in, uh, things into the network. There is instability. So how complex is the grid now? Mm. You know? 
So finally, you give them the tools to switch off this part, switch on this part, you know, sell energy in this area, resell it in this area, tools that you didn't have before. So from one side, we give the network, and it's just a complex situation. So sensors, the network, and all the analytics, this is when IoT comes all together, you know, company like us, company that builds sensors, company that builds analytics, and it gives this tool for making important decisions. So yeah, I love these things. In the early days of starting Fleet, how early did you start speaking with customers, uh, identifying that they had these problems? As, as every innovation, you need to go with the industry that is easier to, to, to crack at the beginning. Energy wasn't like this before. Energy two years ago had none of these problems. Mm. So agriculture jumped on this IoT innovation, but they're not ready. You know, they are not ready and technology are not ready. So the first three years of fleet, understanding the go-to-market strategy and the right, um, was, was help. Like, so what we did is that we sold, um, we sell in every market, try to understand which one had more traction. And then one year ago, we actually stepped back and said, okay, we have sold hundreds of things from, uh, from Canada to Papua New Guinea, from Madagascar to Japan, from the farmer to the oil and gas companies, which one is the industry that it, you can crack faster? Mm. So one year ago, I started my, my climate change fight, that personal, you know, in my house, bringing the kids, uh, you know, it's just, that was my thing. I got so passionate about it, involved all the entire fleet team, uh, a fleet with all sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, and then we realized, okay, now we've got a opportunities to really do something good. Are we going to do it with oil and gas? Are we going to do it with like coal? Or are we going to do it for the good things? Mm. And it's a difficult decision to make as a CEO because, you know, some of the big guys got big money. But we said, okay, we felt a purpose as a team. And we're like, okay, we're going we're gonna to go energy, water. We're going to go where? The world is important. Look at this coronavirus crisis, you know, energy and water are still important for everyone. Uh, the basic, you know, and, uh, and we did well. So it gave us purpose to try to help the world to change a little bit, you know. You talked about the vision being connecting everything and then starting with a wide set of problems and a wide set of um, different customers. Uh, what was the moment where you realized that you needed it? take a step back and scale things down? It was uh, when we raised last year in August. Um, it's uh, For a solution like us, it's really easy to get lost, you know, because everyone wants a piece of you. Everyone is learning in a new market, but you, we, we needed to keep Fleet alive. And I was telling you, Fleet had a lot of revenue, couldn't crack the annual recurring revenue that is important for a company like this because people were buying and not screening up. You know, they were just, not, they didn't know what IoT was. So we said, okay, we need to, and we had a strategy in which we were too far from the customer. So we had distribution and system integrated in the middle. So we could not understand the customer. So we, in April, we, in April, in August last year, we stopped everything. We told the board, you guys have to give us four months because we are stepping back from this. Yeah, it looks great, but it's, this is not the path. So what we did that we loved is that we were started from scratch. This is after three years. So we did something like 500 interviews in all the industries, you know, from oil and gas, mining, agriculture, all of them, from CEOs to operational guy in every company. 
and even talking about fleet, asking them, okay, what's your, what's, your, what's your problem? If you had a magic wand, what would you solve? And we mapped in every company. I mean, this is like from the biggest agricultural company to, you know, the biggest energy company to ExxonMobil, so every company in the world. And say, if you have a problem, like, you know, and some probably couldn't solve, like, you know, my HR boss is an asshole. Like, <laughs> okay? But then we start, started seeing a trend and we started seeing that some market, some industry had a specific application in which we could track, completely crack it. And four months of nonstop interviews, a team of five um, that really helped the pipeline as well. They started to fire all the customers that were tiny and focus like crazy in working with this energy company and others. So utilities, very peculiar utilities in very peculiar application working directly with the customer. And we went from, you know, 20 times annual recurring revenue in two months. Wow. So yeah, and it was it was focus. It was focus. And do you think that needs to stay the same as you start to scale from where you are now? No, we need to re-update. So now we've got a goal, you know, to, to keep it up. And we're trying to keep it up also this quarter with coronavirus. We're so like, okay, if this is really critical infrastructure, that will not stop. So we need to be true to our message, helping critical infrastructure to do better. So we want to keep pushing this year. And that's so what the idea is that we move from this application in this market to another application in this market. Eventually we move on and we grow. But with a very focused attitude. And the entire team is focused. So, we, you know, we have uh, every quarter we got um, um, a theme for fleet. And last, last quarter was Power Rangers. And uh, we were the power people. We were like going down into the power utilities world. <laughs> and, and we smashed it, you know. And this quarter is Power Ranger rock solid. So, you know, we had Power Ranger, but we are rock solid. So give them absolutely a perfect product. Focus. It's the biggest lesson I've learned in, in startup world. It's, uh, it's a, and again, I can't, I wish I could have learned it two years ago, but it's hard to say because sometimes you can focus if you, if you got all the right information on the table, right? As you said, Fleet was one of the companies that have sort of pioneered space in Australia. Um, in the beginning, did you need to convince people or from the get-go were, with people no, one in love with it. no one really believed in this crap. And like the first two years before fleet, everyone was like one year before fleet. We raised money with you guys one year after we founded fleet, right? And everyone was like, this is never going to happen in Australia. Never, ever, ever. If I had one penny for every person that told me that, I would be so <laughs> would raise the amount. I mean, I like, uh, I would live on a boat on a yacht in front of the sea. Um, the good thing about Australia is that they don't fight you. Amazing things I've learned in People just don't believe in it, but they don't fight you. So they don't try to stop you. So they look at it, it's never going to happen. But they don't, they don't really annoy you. So you go down your path. Mm. Okay. And then when something happened, they're like, I knew this would have been a good idea. Like, sure. Okay. Bye. So you, you need to be a believer. You need to believe it. You know, the first five to six years, like crazy. So I don't think everyone still believes in fleet. You know, we have so much to demonstrate. But what we are trying to demonstrate is that we know this is hard, so we, we don't give up. What were some of the milestones that you hit that demonstrated to other people that I mean, we lost a lot in one here, right? Mm. And we brought into use our frequency that was mental 
being very complicated. And now we are trying to reach, you know, the, the big millions on recurring revenue that it's, that it's hard work for a company like this. And now we want the next milestone that we want to do is launch. Um, so we changed uh, satellite providers because we didn't trust. So the, the goal of fleet is reaching to a point that you trust the satellites you can mass produce. And you mass produce, you launch 20 at the time. Mm. And, you know, if you look at what happened with fleet, like the first four satellites went out with nine months delays. Then there is the coronavirus. This is also, I mean, I need a rocket in my backyard. You know, I can launch any, any time. And now we need to demonstrate that we can mass produce satellite. What was it like um, to launch your very first so, satellite? Uh, interesting stuff is that we, we plan to launch two. I don't know if you know the story, but we, we plan to launch two, Centauri 1 and Centauri 2. And that was at the beginning of 2018, right? Mm. Um, SpaceX had nine months of delays because uh, God knows what, oh you know. Gosh. And we had two years of runway, okay. I mean, we have the same runway of people building a software, not moving the ass from a computer. Mm. And we needed to launch something on a rocket. So nine months, nine months, delay, delay, delay. It's, it's September of that year and still these things are not going up. And I'm in LA where we're building, uh, San Francisco where we are building the satellites and we know that there are still three months of delays. This is September. And I'm like, money are finishing. And I'm like, wow, this is good. This is terrible. Okay, this is absolutely terrible. So we we decided to build other two satellites, Proxima 1 and 2, with a scrap of the things that were left from the other two satellites. That was the 13th of September. I remember because it was my daughter's birthday. And then I rang Rocket Lab and I said, do you have a spot on your October launch? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, I'm launching two satellites next month. And he's like, okay. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, in, in three weeks. And he's like, as long as you can build them. And I'm like, okay, guys. I mean, like, we, we, we built Centauri 1 in nine months, Centauri 2 in six months, approximately one or two in two weeks. Wow. And then we packed them in the luggage. We went to New Zealand and we launched them. And, uh, and it was, at, at, and they were fine. And so, so we had a bridge round to wait for SpaceX to launch the other two. <laughs> so it's mental, you know what I mean? Like that time. And at the end of the day, all these four satellites got launched in three weeks. So Proxima 1 and 2 went up then the week after. And, and it was the longest four weeks of our lives. That was for Christmas. Like we were in nine people in the team managing the four satellites, uh, going in round and all sleeping there in the warehouse. And uh, the, the fun things, I mean, that was the, the craziest time of our lives because we were not prepared to organize the mission control and the, the, you know, the operation of four satellites. Every week it was manual. And manual means that when I said, like, uh, go on top of you, you send the data, receive the data, analyze the data, you send the data. So it's 24 hours operation for mm. nine people full time. And you see the satellite six minutes a day, so you can't fall asleep. You have, you have to do everything <laughs> in this minutes. After two weeks, we sat it's down together. We were, we were completely smashed. Like Matt and I just managed to close a round to keep us alive, but we were just tired. And, and we will look at the software people like, you have to automate everything. You have to have a const automated constellation management. We got a person from Planet, big like a big satellite company. And by Christmas, everything was automated. We went home, I slept 48 hours. 
I woke up, I went to sleep in Friday night. I woke up on, you know, on freaking Sunday. Oh you know? my gosh. And I'm like, wow, I completely missed the day. And uh, that's amazing. And that's how nine completely tired engineers built a constellation management tool all automated because they were tired. So what are some of the challenges that you do face from Adelaide? Listen, a couple of years ago, I would have tell you no one would have ever relocated to Adelaide. Since the space agency here, they all do. It changed completely fleet. Like two years ago, everyone was like, who wants to come to Adelaide? Can I work from Sydney? Now they all move. Like they, like 90% of the people moved because the space agency here and they think this is going to be the fun, it's going to be here. So it really helped me. What has been the most challenging part for you uh, in your founder journey? Okay, we need to crack sales. We need to understand this. You you give it to, to a person or you need, we need to solve this big problem in the satellites. You give it to another person and they suddenly they don't crack it, okay? I've learned two lessons. Most of the time, it was my responsibility. I either hired the wrong person for the job or I left them without my support. And it's terrible to say because the CEO or the co-founders can't be everywhere, but they have to. You cannot hire people thinking in the first couple of years they will sell things for you. And you cannot let people build a product thinking that will build it for you. You have to be there. You have to do it. You have to show them the path. If you were sort of sitting in the future 10 years from now, what does a world with fleet look like? I, I, I really hope to die CEO of fleet and fleet being huge. Thank you so much for your time, Flavia. Thanks for having me. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love for you to send us an email, wildhearts at blackbird.vc. I hope you subscribe. And if you like the podcast, we'd be super grateful if you left us a review. You can also check out fleet.space to see whether they have any jobs or if you'd like to look deeper into the company. And finally, if you haven't already signed up to Giants, it's an online webinar starting on the 28th of May. Early stage founders get the rare opportunity to stand on the shoulder of Giants from the founders and operators who've been before them. Thanks so much for joining me and I'll see you in two weeks time.